Hello and welcome to Core Truth, the podcast show, where we will discover the core truth that controls our experience of life. I'm your host, Mark Follett, and together with my friend, mentor, and author of the book, The Truth of Love and Fear, Rudy Ecker, we will peel back the outer layers of consciousness in order to understand and realize the nature of our perceptions and the beliefs that control the experience of our lives. We will uncover the true nature of consciousness, what drives our personal actions, behavior, and feelings in life, and what really motivates mankind. So we welcome you to join us on a journey of self-discovery, self-realization, and self-awareness to give you a new insight into who you believe you are. This is Core Truth, where we discuss the philosophy of core belief therapy, created by Rudy Eckhart. I'm your show host, Mark Follett, and today we are going to continue our discussion about victims and victimhood, and we're going to talk about whether there are real victims in the world, and we're going to be talking about victimhood at a world consciousness level and sort of probably zoom a bit out from what we've been talking about over the last few episodes. Uh, how are you, Rudy, today? I'm very well. Welcome, everyone. Yeah, this subject is, um, I've put it last because I find it um, um, a difficult subject to talk about because of the complications and the depth that it really has. And so I hope we can cover enough for you at least to get a, 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 an understanding of what I'm um, what I'm trying to tell you and what I'm trying to explain, but also how this works in the world in respect to victimhood, the way we've been talking about it. So, so victimhood, as we now know, comes out of powerlessness. Now, powerlessness can be created in many different ways. Um, fear is, of course, the underpinning force that makes powerlessness for us a reality. Um, the fear of doing something makes us powerless to do it. The fear of saying something makes us powerless to say it. But also like overarching ideas that we live with, which um, we often do not realize render ourselves, which, which we render ourselves powerless. And we referenced beliefs in the last podcast towards the end um, beliefs and religions, um, because religions are nothing but a collection of belief systems that um, may, how can I say that, that you are asked to accept as a truth and you are asked to live by it. Now, these belief systems change from religion to religion. Um, if you were to look very deeply, you would probably find that at the core, um, at the very deepest core, um, the very things that we've been talking about here, unconditional love, acceptance and trust, are a definitive part of the deeper core. But when you go to the surface of a belief system, so many protocols, rituals and um, convictions that are more superficial uh, stand out so strongly that we believe that or we we kind of think we know that all religions are very, very different from one another. And the things that distinguish a religion from another are relatively superficial to the core beliefs that drive religion in the first place. But because most people only ever experience the superficial part of religion, then the fears and, um, um, how can I say it, the the values and standards by which religions operate, because they have their own, um, become the rules by which we live our life. So the idea that um, a God will punish you and um, make you pay retribution if you behave in what that religion believes is a sinful, sinful way, uh, that is part of some religions. Other religions are based on a um, on a um, loving, caring, and uh, forgiving God, which then implies a whole number of other things. That if you sin, then you will ultimately be forgiven. Uh, there's religions that will damn you into hell. Uh, there's religions that will um, ask you to sacrifice for the sake of its religion. Um, it does like varieties galore, right? There are belief systems that are practiced by natives that are more strongly related to nature 
and the power of nature, uh, seeing the God in nature, so to speak. Uh, so there's a whole variety of things possible here. The things that we are concerned about mostly in this conversation here is religions that promote ideas and beliefs that render the individual powerless. It is those, those things that uh, make us um, victims, if you like, because we give our power away. It also makes us believe that we're not responsible for the same reasons. Um, and so those kind of religions promote the idea that you should have faith in the kind of God that they promote, but also, um, by doing so, promote victimhood and victimness in society and turn us into helpless people. Um, I don't particularly want to name any particular religion because I don't think it's important. People that are religiously um, connected and, and practice religion will know for themselves what I'm talking about. Uh, so it's but there's been a lot of religious wars, you know, in the past in history and, and probably in, in the present day as well, where the, the religious, different religious sects or within one religion or the different religions, uh, crusades and things have been waged on each other. Um, and that, that's an extension of this powerlessness, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's basically, um, I think you're probably getting to this anyway, but, um, if you're a powerless people to your God, then you are also powerless in the world at the same time. Well, you are because you defer your power to a greater force that you believe exists. Um, I, th I think the, um, the conflict between religions and the wars based on that have a lot to do with the fact that fear plays a massive role in the minds of people who have um, the conviction that they only have the right God. And there's a fear, if you like, that if others do not believe in that God, then their belief will be invalidated. That if they cannot force the rest of the world into accepting this God, that it will that it then automatically questions their beliefs, which in many levels is the fact that they're victims and powerless in life. Mm. Um, because that means that they would have to be responsible for their life circumstances. So instead of it being God's will, it becomes their will. And if they make it their will that negative events happening in their life or negative events happen to them, then they would have to take responsibility for it. And I know that sounds like a broad sword to, to sweep across this, but I think um, it may not be in all cases, but in most or many cases, it would, um, this would be the case that fear, fear of an opposing point of view, fear of a different um, religion, fear of a, a unique way of thinking which doesn't um, concur with their way of thinking, and then by definition would be a judgment and a criticism on how they think. I think those fears are enough to drive people into war um, because they make it critical. And because I don't personally understand why it's important that your neighbor thinks the same way as you do. I don't understand it. Um, I, I see this in many areas of life, really. Like with, with, with foods, people have different beliefs about foods. They, you know, these foods are the right ones, these foods are the right ones. And there's a, there's a, this battle goes on between people that have different beliefs because they are challenged by the fact someone else has a different belief. And that challenges the fact that they might not be right in their beliefs. You know, people want to, I think, cling on to through, through fear. They just want to cling on to the beliefs that they've got. Um, because, yeah, but not, not just because it is a belief. It is not, they don't cling, you don't cling on to a belief because it's just a belief. It's, it's kind of, you cling on to the belief because you want it to be right. Mm. You cling on to it because you want it to be superior. You cling on to it because it, it gives you, as a person, a sense of positive identity and positive presence 
uh, in the world, right, with others. And it is that sense of identity, I think, that people crave, especially when they get into religious groups, they crave that connection and identity. Well, identity is an interesting thing because it is like when you don't know who you are, how can I make myself in somebody? And, you know, the different ways that we do that, anything from putting tattoos on our body to get some identification and validation of how we think and feel to religion or sect or... um you can even be an atheist to get a form of identity, <laughs> yep. right? Um, so to can tell everybody you believe in nothing, so you can make everybody believe that you believe in nothing, so you can be a believing non-believer. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's like a contradiction in terms. Um, it's, it, is, um, it is interesting that we do that because we as human beings always search. The interesting part is that we search for who we are and we spent all of our life doing. We think doing is the solution to everything, but we're constantly searching for an inner identity and a sense of being that makes us feel good about ourselves and makes us feel secure and safe. And so it's interesting that if you think about it, that we, the, first, the first thought that comes in our head is what can I do to? What can I do to? What can I do to be special, unique, different? powerful, in control, successful. And so, you know, it is, our, it, it is conceptually an idea, uh, the doing idea is an idea, a simplistic idea that supposedly brings us to a place where we are <coughs> an empowered human being who knows who they are. But in the essence of it is that it leads us away from knowing who we are and it doesn't resolve anything of our fears that drive us to do the things that we do. So we're going to make this conversation about what is really a victim and is there such a thing as somebody really being a victim? And it's a difficult question. It's a difficult question to answer because the only real victims that exist in the world are children. The moment they come into the world, naive, unknowing, unaware, um, but still with a personality, with a unique nature, and with the innate drive to feel and experience who they are in the world through their creativity, self-expression, um, through experiencing their feelings and emotions, um, and by structuring beliefs within themselves to live by. They are the innocence of the world when they're born. But they are the ones that get indoctrinated, if you like. They get trained, inverted commas, <laughs> by their parents into believing, into believing many things based in fear. And they become then part of the generation that, is, that they were born out of, if you like. And they're about to create a new generation. And they don't realize they carry their fears and insecurities forward in time. As a generation, as well as individuals. Yeah. And so when we talk about nations being in conflict, when we talk about wars, we're not looking at the consequence of one individual living their life a certain way. We're looking at collective populations who have generationally propagated their fears forward in time through religion, through, um, through culture, through many different ways, right? And even, now, even political um, connections, and political connections, yeah. corruption, you name it, right? Everything that is promoted by powerlessness and now have reached as a population, as a collective, a critical point where they, as a collective, are experiencing the nature of their powerlessness as a collective. But of course, each individual will experience their own particular version of that powerlessness in a particular conflict. And the death and, and mayhem and maiming and, and, and um, emotional, physical damage that is done in these conflicts um, serve to, um, to make us look at ourselves, to make us look at who we are on a very fundamental level, to make us look at our fears and insecurities. 
whether they do so, whether it does so or not, or whether this actually happens or not, may not happen for every individual, but I know a lot of people come to the realization, coming out of a war, what they really want out of life, and that their values and standards by which their life dramatically changes. Um, they begin to realize what really matters and what's really important at a loss of everything else. And so, and so the idea of victimhood in that sort of circumstance uh, still comes back to the individual because the individual is the propagator and the carrier of the fears and insecurities of the collective. And unconsciously or subconsciously, um, raises their own children into the same and uh, causes them to be the next carrier, the next courier almost, if you like, of that, of those fears uh, and of that powerlessness. And so it will always reach a critical stage as a collective as well as it does as an, for an individual. Because as you create negative experiences in your life as a collective, you do the same. But you can imagine that as a collective, is multiplied and amplified many, many times. And that the event then is of greater magnitude in every negative direction you can think of. So not only do people suffer the worst of circumstances, but there are on the other side people that commit the worst of crimes against humanity on a personal level and have to live with that. So those who suffer, suffer that. But those who do it have to live that. So nobody escapes that either. There's no escape from the consequences of fear. Mm. Um, so there's other kinds of victims we can think of, the victims of earthquakes, landslides, um, tsunamis, airplane crashes, car accidents. Mm. Um, Is there always referred to yeah, Falling people, off a building, yeah. People who die in these circumstances are always called victims. You know, there's, there's always the victims of a particular tragedy or a particular event. Yeah. It's the way we, we have um, learned to identify uh, these events by referencing referencing I kind of say referencing them with the word victim. Yeah. Yeah. And so the word victim unfortunately has the connotation attached to it that a victim is somebody who is innocent of what happened to them. Mm. Yeah. Which is which is basically an outside influence. In in the case of an earthquake, you'd be a victim of an earthquake. An outside influence, which is an yeah. earthquake which you had nothing to do with as an individual, has f caused your house to fall over and on you and kill you. So sort of the way it's reported, isn't it? So I want to say something. I mean, you said to me I should tell this story, so I'm going to. Yeah. Um, because it's a, it has to do with me. Um, I in my teenagehood had very low self esteem. And I contributed or attributed a lot of my problems in terms of being in the world and making relationships with people um, to my appearance. I thought if my nose was too big, my, I was ugly, unattractive, um, and I felt that that had a lot to do, uh, as we, as all and everyone is likely to do, is to blame it on my appearance, uh, what my social issues were. And so I lived that for a long time. I was also depressed. That didn't help. And so I had many times thought about leaving this world. So when I was 22 years old, I had an accident on Liverpool Road here in Sydney, uh, Australia, and I, um, I was knocked out in the crash. The car accident. Yeah, the car accident, and um, without going into details what the crash was all about, it doesn't really matter. But I was knocked out, and my face was completely caved in by the accident. So in other words, my, I had a cracked skull, uh, my cheekbones were smashed, my nose was smashed, and the roof, the palate, the roof of my mouth had completely broken off. And so my whole center of my face had totally collapsed. I wasn't a good thing to look at. At the time, I looked pretty horrible. And so I went to, through facial reconstruction after that, to recover my face. My, my, my face is fine uh, right now uh, and has been for a long time. But the point of it was that when I woke up out of that accident and I was, yeah, I was out for quite a while, for hours, um, 
when I came back, I had the immediate realization what had happened. And I felt, and I was sure at the time, that even though I wasn't doing this work, and even though I hadn't read any of the books that I read since, um, since I was 33, I came to the realization that that was that I created it. That the reason on my face was the my facial injuries were the consequence of my own um, criticism and judgment of my face, and it was kind of there to show me that my face didn't matter. Now, just to put a, a finer point on this, is that uh, unlike what you see in the movies, it takes quite a while for your face to come back to normal. And when I say quite a while, we're talking about years. And so it took a couple of years for my face to reach a certain normality. Just so you understand how um, how different my appearance became, is that when I went back to work uh, some months after the accident, uh, the people I'd worked with for over uh, four years uh, did not recognize me and didn't know who I was. And... Um, actually asked me who I was, because I they thought I was somebody walked in from the street. So it wasn't like I had some miraculous um, appearance change that made me look fantastic. It wasn't like that at all. What it did do, however, it made me completely, over the years that followed, completely discount my facial appearance as being of any consequence because I knew that I had to live with, with whatever it was going to be. And I let all the issues around it go. Instead of going descending into, I'm now the ugliest person in the world because I had a car accident, I thought, this is something that is what it is, and I can't change it, so it doesn't matter. It has to be irrelevant. And it became irrelevant. My appearance has always been irrelevant since then. And I've never traded or had expectations of it or um, used it in any way or made excuses for it in any way in my life. So I've never said, oh, they don't like me because of the way I look. It's never been an excuse that I've used, even after the accident, because I realized that I'd created it. But, but that was only since the accident, because before that you said you did have those. Thoughts. Before I did that, mm. before I made it a point, uh, add to this that I was wearing glasses. So I blamed glasses, I blamed my face, I blamed... didn't help that I was picked on and bullied as a child either at school. Mm -hmm. None of those things helped me because they only confirmed what I believed to be true. Right? Um, the reality was that I was socially awkward, that I... Uh, wasn't socialized properly by my parents, that I was raised in, in a family which, due to the fact I had two divorced parents who couldn't get on with their families because of the divorce, um, that my family was quite isolated and we were just a tiny family unit with very little contact uh, with other family members. And so my parents didn't have... Uh, friends and acquaintances that we mixed with their children and that sort of thing. So I basically was a street kid and my socialization happened on the street. But I realized when I was 11 or 12 years old that somehow I was way behind. Somehow I didn't have that confidence because I somehow never learned it through my parents. And uh, that created a big disconnect for me. So it came back to blaming it on the face and the car accident and my realization that it happened because of my focus and of my fear. Because I feared my face, if you really think about it. I feared being who I was with my face. And so in the absence of a face, there was nothing to fear, so to speak, because <laughs> it got... It's, it, and, and it's a bizarre way to put it, perhaps, but when you have no face, then you just have to live with what you've got. I think I think the, in the moment that it happened, and I saw myself because I wasn't. A, well, it was so bad that the nurses did not allow me to look into the mirror. That's how bad it looked. And I actually um, escaped from bed, and I struggled um, to get to the toilet and lock the door. So I could see myself. That was um, that was 
seven, eight days after the accident happened. And I, um, was I shocked? I, I was shocked. And I made that determination in that moment when I saw my face that I can't allow it to make a difference. And I just put it aside. It didn't matter anymore. I mean, to my mind, I was never going to be good looking. So what are you going to do about it? Mm. You know what I mean? So to my mind, it is an inevitable part of my existence. And therefore, I'm just going to make the most of what I've got. And it was pointless to do anything else, to even to be negative about it. So the additional side to what it did for me is that I looked differently at attractive people. In other words, I looked at attractive people in a way whereby I thought, even though you have this attractive face, um, and I can admire as a man a good-looking woman or even a good-looking bloke for looking the way he does, right? Um, but I, um, I kept the look separate from the personality. In other words, so you may look like that, but how are you as a person? Because that's what really matters mm. to me. Because eventually, looks are like something that you look past. And eventually, you're living with a person. And that person, if they are difficult to be with, or they have problems and issues that they impose on you, then um, that is what you live with. And that's what you can't live with. And that's what will decide whether there's an enduring relationship there or not. So, so going back to victimhood, then you, you then felt... Did you feel like the victim of a car accident in that situation? No. No. I felt I'd created it myself. Mm. I thought, I th when, I, when I realized that, um, it was kind of like a, it's like a wry smile, if you like, where I thought, see what you do to yourself by thinking the way you do. And so there was a level of awareness in me about that, and there was an... A, a, a strong responsibility aspect in me that I was the creator of this, but that doesn't mean that that I was aware of the things that I'm aware of now. Mm. So I was still in in a, in a in a process of evolving, but I can also say that the experience of being knocked out and what it did to me, uh, when I came out of that, I came out of that as a different individual after that car accident, and. Um, that took about 10 years to come to a point where I started doing something with that. But it didn't get rid of all my negativity. It certainly didn't resolve my depression immediately, but it made me see myself and the world in a very different light. And um, I would say um, ultimately it was a positive experience because it, it um, launched me into a different way of thinking and a different way of being and a different awareness, which has led me to where I am now. So did that accident have to happen for me to, to be like this? I would still say no. There would have been other ways that it may have happened. But for me, it, 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 it came out that way because I made it happen through my intent. So that doesn't mean that I drove into a car because in actual fact the accident was such that somebody else drove into me. Um, the point that I'm trying to make here is it doesn't matter how the accident occurs. It is my, um, my intent that brought this accident about. And your subconscious intent through your beliefs. Through my negative beliefs that brought this accident <coughs> about in the way that it came about and in the way that it eventually made me feel. Now, so, it doesn't matter who was guilty of the accident. It's totally irrelevant here. Mm. What is relevant here that is that, that in my personal experience that I, um, that I grew from the accident, that it was a launching pad, if you like, for a new way of thinking, a new awareness, a new state of beingness, which which there have been stages that I can talk about, but I don't want to right now, um, in my life that have been platforms that I jumped from, realizations that I had. Um, and I'm only talking about this now in the way that I do because I want people to understand that negative events in your life that you created out of victimhood 
that they are essentially launch pads for new realization if you make them that. That they're launch pads for change. Mm. That they are new platforms to jump off from into life. But if you continue to exacerbate your victimhood by making a negative situation proof that you are a victim and using that proof to justify your victimhood, then you're doing the wrong thing for yourself and eventually the wrong thing to the world, if you like. Because by you being a victim, you support powerlessness and victimhood and fear in the world. You may not think so, but as a collective, as part of a collective, you do. Whether, whether you, and, and, and it is then, once you start using your the, the, the events that you create by the intent that victimhood has, then you start to perpetuate it. You start to justify it. And you start to even fight for it. Because I don't know whether anybody's ever noticed, but when you try to explain to a victim that they are responsible for what they've created, they will aggressively defend their victimhood and their uh, powerlessness um, and get angry and resentful of you if you don't accept it because they refuse to accept that they have something to do with the events they've created in their life. They want proof and they want to convince you that there's nothing they could do about it. But we started talking about this by talking about people who are the victims of landslides and where a whole village gets buried or... Um, or a plane crash or something. A plane crash or something like that. And, yeah. and I, can, I can see the parallels in my own mind with your story, but I think it'd be great if you can make those. Well, you see, when we, when we are the observers of such an event, right, and we hear that a whole village of two, three hundred or... 500 people was buried under a mudslide or that a plane crashed into a mountain or that a tsunami wiped out villages on the coast, right? Um, it is difficult for us to understand how these people could be the creators of that particular event. And this is where it becomes really difficult to explain because to understand all this, you need to understand the deeper consequences of collective victimhood, of collective fears. And you need to understand how it, on a generational level, so in other words, negative beliefs, fear-based beliefs being passed on from generation to generation may be increasing in complexity and in magnitude, uh, can have an eventual event um, Make an, uh, sorry, make, an, make an event eventually happen um, the, in which people can lose their lives. Mm. Um, to people who just see physical life as being the one and only important thing that matters and don't recognize that your consciousness continues its existence regardless of physical life. Um, when people lose their lives, it seems like a terminal condition. And so, therefore, people stop existing in their eyes, in their judgment, when they lose their physical life. To those who, who, who think of consciousness in a more expanded form, in that consciousness will continue to exist regardless of physical life, because consciousness is a state of being which, is, which has essentially um, nothing to do with physical life but is an expression of physical life. Um, no, it's not an expression, it express- but expresses physical yeah. life. Let me get that was like consciousness makes physical life possible, but physical life cannot make consciousness possible. So let's be sure about that. Um, so physical life is a consequence of consciousness. Let, let's, those are the correct words. Um, if you If you can accept that, then... All this looks very differently. All these accidents look very differently because we cannot understand. Okay, let me, let me just go back to my accident. <coughs> my accident required at least two people to drive individual cars. So 
if I make this happen, and if this accident was a pro- make this happen, if this accident was a product of my intent, then in, in essence, I made it happen, not deliberately. It was not a deliberate conscious idea, mm-hmm. but in the way that my intent works, it was looking for an outlet. It was looking to make this intent a reality. And then somewhere in the world, somewhere in Sydney, somewhere on that road at that time, in that moment, there was another man with his issues and problems who had the intent within his issues and problems to have a physical experience to come to a realization of his own. And that man drove into my car. So we have two people with a similar intent, driven by fear, driven by insecurities that in a physical event come together to have what comes basically down to an emotional experience to bring them to realization about themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So that we can understand. So on that level, you can expand and multiply that and you've got a war, right? Absolutely. Um, it's more difficult to, to, to understand this in the way that we have accidents, right? Because it's very interesting. You often read about people catching a plane that crashes, and then there's these one or two or three people that at the last moment decide they're not going. Or their alarm didn't, didn't go off that morning or didn't wake them up. Or Whatever it was yeah. subconsciously, or subconsciously they, the alarm went off. They didn't, they didn't wake up. But they didn't wake up. Yeah. Or they, um, they made themselves late and missed the bus. Or they, there's a reason, right? Or something became more important and they decided to terminate the trip. Yeah. Right? There's, what you're saying, there's, no, there's, no, there's actually any luck involved in, in the sense of uh, external... Well, luck, luck is not a possibility in the universe. Uh, <laughs> so everything in the universe is connected. And this is what we're talking about. We're talking about interconnectedness. Mm. And so those individuals sensed that it was not their time, that it was not didn't in that moment... Didn't match their intent. No. Mm. And so they opted out of the option, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah? It's a subconscious choice. S- just as subconsciously the other stepped on the plane yeah. and went, mm-hmm. right? Now, it's just, it is for us not to understand necessarily what goes on inside the minds of people. I mean, the example I gave you, one of these people may be a, 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 a ballerina with a career in front of her or a scientist um, uh, involved in a... Invo- significant project or um, somebody visiting a mother or a father or doing a business deal uh, they, they, they when you analyze their lives from that perspective you say wow they have so much potential and there's so much ahead of them there's so much they could have done right and you judge the loss by that right unfortunately what you cannot do and what you do not have the capacity for is to go inside their consciousness and know what they believe and think. Not even their parents know this. Not even their closest friends would know this. And, and this is where we don't understand why they have chosen to live this reality in this way. And so it's, it's, these, are, these are difficult things to verify and to conclude. So what I'm saying is my belief. Supported by what I know consciousness to be, supported by all the other ways that people um, express their fears and insecurities and create events that are devastating Mm. through their fears and insecurities. Based on all that, I feel you can extend that into those areas where we have a great deal of difficulty explaining why people die. Mm. Right? Now, you know, we, we, there's a concept called Gaia, and Gaia is where we make the um, assumption or we have the belief that the Earth is an entity. The Earth is a living, breathing consciousness on which we reside like microbes. Mm-hmm. And that our interaction with this world, right, this living, breathing 
um, uh, breathing. Yeah, it does kind of. It's got contact, it's got oxygen. Um, but this 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 earth that you could call breathing because the moon makes it move, if you like, moves the water, moves the air, moves the earth through its gravity and has an effect on us. Um, this, this, this earth is also part of the expression of consciousness. So it is a reality. It has a physicality because it is an expression of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we could say it is conscious. Uh, and therefore, we could say that everything that comes from the earth, that sits on the earth, is part of consciousness. And so what happens on a physical level then um, is interactive. So our consciousness is interactive with the earth. Um, it's quite physical, that interaction. You know, we dig mines. We, uh, we rip the earth open. We build dams. We, we pump water into places where it naturally didn't form. We, we change things. We, um, we have an effect on the earth. We change its atmosphere. We change um, uh, quite dramatically um, what grows on the earth. We physically cut things down and we remove them and change them and pollute them. And so, so we have a massive impact on this earth, right? Um, so the earth reacts. The earth moves. There's earthquakes, tsunamis. There's, there's mudslides. There's rain. There's storm. There's lightning. It's all part of the total consciousness that we call Earth, right? And while the, 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 um, the circle of interaction may look far removed from us, um, our influence uh, and the interaction between us and the consciousness of the Earth may not be well understood, but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So... Our lack of understanding of consciousness plays a higher role here in our lack of understanding of how we affect the earth than anything else, how we affect the weather. I was going to probably add something there, but probably in regards to both of these things that you've been talking about. So with regard to, you know, we're talking, we're talking about, say, a plane crash or those sort of events, and I have tried to explain this to people before, and, and what, what I often hear is, but you don't know the plane's going to crash. Even if you had the intent subconsciously to die, you, you don't know the plane's going to crash. It might be an accident, like the thing might explode. And, of course, what you're talking about here with the Earth is also the same thing, where we quite often consciously we don't understand how consciousness works, how we're connected with everything, and the time scales involved in and the knowledge that is actually available to us. Um, between those two things, people would be saying to you, I think listeners would be saying, well, how could you create those experiences for yourself when you don't even know they're going to happen because they haven't happened yet in time? No, but they do happen. But there is um, an awareness at a subconscious level of these occurrences. No, no okay. That's an, it, it takes us to a slightly different place. Yeah, I'm I think okay. because, because we've skipped, I think you and I both understand this sort of concept. We've kind of skipped over something I think people are going to question without explaining it. Okay. Everything... Every conscious, everything that is conscious and consciousness has intent. And intent has the automatic quality of projection. So an intent automatically gets projected as a possibility. More than one possibility sometimes. Prob prob like probabilities. Like probabilities, yeah. Mm. So Some things are more likely than others. And yeah. Well, yeah, and, and whether they are more likely than others uh, depend on the collective of that as well. So, um, if a number of people, like, okay, if you put a collective of fear together, right, then there is a collective intent that has a collective number of possibilities, which will coalesce into maybe a single possibility, or a single possibility which becomes an opportunity, if you like. Um, the plane itself, right? We don't know that it's going to crash, but the plane itself, as a plane, the reason why it crashed would have been already in the plane before it took off. Mm -hmm. Or the possibility for that plane to crash or it already existed, right? Uh, how many times haven't we heard, like, um, I don't know if anybody watches this program, I've watched it a few times, 
where they talk about airplane crashes, right? Where they explain why a plane air crashed. Mm-hmm. And they're looking for pilot error, judgment error, material error in the, in the, in the, in the uh, plane itself, structural, structural problems, etc., etc., right? And you've got to understand that each of these things, no matter whether they're structural or whether they are the pilot or whether they are the pilot in the weather, the pilot in the structure, the pilot and circumstances or usually, the plane and circumstances. It's, usually it's like 10 things have to go wrong before it actually crashes. Potentially. Usually it's when you do those investigation type things, you usually find out that it's this unusual thing happened and then this unusual thing happened and then there was a guy sick that day, so there was a stand-in guy. And, you know, it, it looks like a whole bunch of coincidences. Correct. That's what it looks like. And all these coincidences are actually probabilities. And all these probabilities have, can be confirmed into an event. Um, intent plays a much bigger part in this than one would think, right? Because a faulty screw has the intent to fail. <laughs> Do you understand? It's as simple as that. You know, uh, a weak piece of aluminium has the uh, intent to fail under under pressure. And so when there are issues structurally with the plane, for whatever reason those structures became a problem, right? Which may even be in the design phase for all I know, or in the manufacture of the material, or in the assembly of the material. And the, the, there's so many possibilities, but they eventually come out of human consciousness. Because we designed the plane. Mm-hmm. We put the, put the alloy together. Mm-hmm. We assembled it. We designed the screws, the bolts. We drilled the holes. And made the machines that made the bolts. And, yeah. Everything is us. So somewhere along the way, we are involved in it, right? And whilst every potential for failure may never or not always become a reality, the probability is there. And since we cannot do everything perfectly, inbuilt in everything, there is the probability of it, let's call it failing, going wrong, uh, creating different circumstances, mm-hmm. no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, what can I add to this? Some people may have heard of the butterfly effect, where a, a butterfly flapping its wings in the Amazon creates a tornado over America. Right, that a small shift somewhere in the world can create massive consequences somewhere else. Right, um, our lack of understanding of how, and this is what this is trying to explain, our lack of understanding of the origin of events, uh, something we're still trying to learn a lot about, um, where science still at this point doesn't have a handle on why physical events occur in the way that they occur and why they occur at certain times and not at others. Um, The constant monitoring that we do now of the weather of uh, the earth in order to be able to predict how these elements will react, right, uh, is constantly going on because we're trying to understand the nature of events. What we exclude from all of this is the intent of human beings. It is not seen as being part of it because when you work in material science, you automatically exclude that because you don't see it as a force. But if you were to think of consciousness being at the origin of all physical reality, then you have to think differently because then you have to think if consciousness is is at the origin of it, then consciousness must have an influence over it. Then all consciousness is involved with one another and interconnected. Mm. And so it's the lack of understanding of the nature of this interconnectivity that makes us wonder and question why things happen and why people die and why they are the victims on a small scale, but as well as on a large scale. Mm. And, and, and it is impossible for me to give a total, complete and... and, and um, a concise understanding as to why each event happened because I'd have to know so much <laughs> about 
each individual consciousness and maybe even of the history of that family consciousness and of that cultural consciousness and of what particular group or collective that belongs to in order for me to be able to say to you, um, that's why he left his life. Because I think even if I did, and I had all that information, you probably wouldn't believe me. <laughs> because you would not have the information to verify what I tell you. And as you said, it's impossible from the outside to know what was really going on inside the person subconsciously and even consciously. So to really know this stuff, to the extent that your question probably thinks you should know it, the first place to start is to raise your own consciousness to levels where you can start to begin to understand this stuff. Mm -hmm. Where you first of all need to know yourself. Because without knowing yourself, you will not know anything. You just think you do. You only know the world by knowing who you are. The clarity will only come when you have clarity inside. And the clarity will only come when that clarity that you want to find inside um, is there because there is no fear involved. There are no conditions involved. I always come back to that. And I can't help it because it's the only thing that will take you where you want to go. Mm. Um, all the processes I've outlined in earlier podcasts about victimhood, um, please, you know, try them out. You know, try out the mini person on your shoulder um, to, um, to ask yourself questions that you haven't been asking yourself before. And if, of your friends who feel victims in certain circumstances or just generally in their life, start asking them the questions that they're not asking themselves. Start them off by making them realize that they have a part to play in the way they feel and that they're the only ones that can really change by changing themselves. That by taking responsibility, they're not taking a step backwards and they're not blaming themselves, but they're actually taking responsibility of um, being who they are and giving themselves thereby the capacity to actually change. Because as long as you're in denial, and you're the victim, then you don't have to change and you have no potential to change because victimhood implies that the world has to change and not you. Mm. And that will never happen. It won't. The world will never happen. Uh, the, sorry, the world will never change for you. Mm. Right? It will never happen that way. So if you want to wait for the world to change, then you'll be a victim forever. If you change yourself, then you have the opportunity to become an empowered individual. Mm. Yeah. Well, that, that's a that's a an impassioned wrap up that you've given us there to the whole series of it's, uh, podcasts. Really. It's the one place you have choice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is, and that's where your true power comes from—is from that power of choice. Right? So, yeah, wish everyone well, and um, we'll be back next week with um, something entirely different. We might talk about intent a little further, perhaps. Intent or need? Or need, yes. <laughs> It'll be a surprise. All right, thank you, everybody, and we'll talk to you next time. Okay.